I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Rula is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Rula interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. This episode of Ruler Conversations is brought to you by GCN+. We're getting right into the heart of classic season now and I've cancelled all weekend plans until the end of April when I anticipate again cancelling my weekend plans through May for the Giro d'Italia. We all know that the classics are unmissable races, and you can guarantee you won't miss a moment of these incredible races with GCN+. You can watch all the major races for both men and women, live and uninterrupted, with GCN Plus's ad-free coverage. And for those days when you just can't get out of what's been planned, you can catch up at a time that suits you with a full replay, or GCN Plus's selection of highlights packages. There's expert commentary, and then GCN Plus's panel of knowledgeable ex-pros will analyse the action and explain the tactics. You can also get all the pre-race information you need with full previews, maps, profiles and start lists on the GCN app. With GCN Plus, the coverage continues all through the road and MTB seasons and beyond to the cyclocross and track seasons and you'll have access to a huge collection of exclusive cycling films. There are over 150 to choose from, covering all aspects of the sport, with more added every week. A GCN Plus subscription costs as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, and all our listeners, based in the UK and US, can save 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. Head to gcn.eu slash ruler15 to subscribe. That's gcn.eu slash ruler15. I'm Edward Pickering. I'm the editor of Ruler and this is Ruler Conversations. We're going to be talking about the classics today and for the next few weeks. I'm going to catch up with James Start, Ruler's roving photojournalist, who had the best seat in the house at Milan San Remo, where he photographed the race from the back of a moto. I'll also be interviewing GCN Plus presenter and former professional rider Dan Lloyd to discuss this year's classics, and I'll be talking to Ruler staff writer Rachel Jarry about Trofeo Binder. We also have a new edition of the magazine coming out imminently, Ruler 118, the classics issue, and I'll be previewing one of the features, written and shot by James, on one of the archetypal cycling bars of Flanders, in Dizon. At Ruler, we like beer and we like bike racing, and we see no reason why we can't mix the two. But first, I'm joined by James Start, safely back in Paris following a tough assignment in Italy. So James, how was your day on the back of the moto at Milan San Remo? <laughs> it was very long, I'll tell you that. 300 kilometers on the back of a bike. That was a long day in the saddle. I got a sense of just how long and hard it is for the riders. It's a very long race. Of course, you pass the time by taking brilliant photographs, but it must be a really long day for you as well. It is. It's just very long. And I kind of got off on the back foot because I took a early photo across the plains outside of Milano because that's sort of the first chapter of this race, right? And then I spent like 30 kilometers trying to get around the Peloton again. So I was like, okay, now I got to really pick my spots. 
And as a result, I didn't get to as many spots or didn't shoot as much as I would like. That said, it gave me the opportunity to see the race like I rarely do. If you're trying to follow it in the car, you don't only really get the magnitude of it. You don't certainly don't get what you see on television, which is this magnificent ride along the Riviera. And I did get that and I was able to see that and I got to some wonderful spots there. And it is just such a stunning, beautiful race. And I would urge all listeners to go to the Rulo website and search for your gallery of Milan San Remo because it just looked like a, another stunning day with a beautiful bike race taking place in you know, under blue skies in beautiful scenery. Yeah, it really was. And then you had the four biggest guys in cycling almost right now. The, and the four main fate, well, Ghana was making a guest appearance. I mean, he's always good, but I don't think... Everybody thought he was going to be there on the Poggio, but we knew Pogacar was an attack on the Poggio. We just knew it. He had to already push the pace on the Cipressa, which he did. And then the Poggio, and then, you know, Van Art, Matthew Van Der Poel, and Ghana, all right there. It was epic. And then, you know, this amazing counterattack by Matthew Van Der Poel to go solo and win it, it will go down in history as one of the great rides, I think. When you think about Milan San Remo, it's one of those races where... There's only a few ways to win it, yet each victory has their own nuance. Other people have attacked on the Poggio and won solo. This was Van der Poel's version of that. It did look like the strongest rider won the race, didn't it? Was he stronger than Pogacar? I don't know, but he certainly, you know, Pogacar wasn't strong enough to drop him. He used his head, he timed it perfectly, and he had the form of his life. So, yeah, he's the strongest guy today. I mean, he was the strongest and smartest. I would say. But, you know, Pogachar he really made a, took a big dig out there and he knew that he couldn't wait to sprint with those guys. So he had to put it down uh, on the climbs and he gave it everything. It just wasn't enough. It just always produces great champions. Best riders were at the front, animating, putting on one great show and it was an epic, epic race. To my mind, I mean, Van der Poel seized his moment and one alone, and you can't argue with that. I think he was the strongest rider in the race. Yeah, it's very clear on the Poggio that the four strongest riders did go clear. I mean, anyone who could have been there would have been there, and I, I think it was clear that those four had the race in their hands. But between them, it wasn't a case of them each having an equal chance because Pogacar obviously set up the attack. You know, it was his team that set him up. He attacked and drew those other three riders clear. But when you looked at those riders, I felt Van Aert, I didn't think he was going to win. I thought that he was struggling to pull himself up to that attack. I thought Ghana looked incredible. Pogacar, I think, made his attack, but that lost him the race because when Van der Poel went, Pogacar obviously couldn't follow because he was uh, tired from his own attack. Van Aert couldn't follow. The only person I felt could ask what if about that race was Filippo Gannon because I I really think he didn't look too bad on the Poggio and if he had countered immediately when Van der Poel attacked, I think he could have followed him. But then that's not to say that those two would then have stayed away because once you get more than one person away in a bike race, they start looking at each other and Another thing about this Milan San Remo is it followed the theme of all the major one-day races of 2023 so far, that a solo attacker has won the race, and in each case, the group behind had possibly the capacity to chase them down, but didn't because of politics. And when you look at the gap to Van der Poel, to Ghana, Van Aert and Pogacar, I think... We'll never know, but maybe if they had all committed fully, they could have pulled Van der Poel back at least close enough to contest the victory. But the fact is they didn't. You could see they weren't quite committed. They were riding hard, but not. they weren't all out to chase him. And that was the difference. Absolutely. And it was a case study in that in the classic race scenario of you, a guy gets 10 or 15 seconds and then he's struggling out there, or she, you know, the, the riders struggling out there trying to stay on their own. But they've got the advantage because they know behind them, somebody, as long as there's no teammates to sacrifice, some other big rider has to make a big effort and probably sacrifice their own chances. The other thing I just wanted to mention was I glossed over Ghana, but it's hard to say Filippo Ghana, the revelation of San Remo. But to date, he is not, you know, an established classics rider. He's coming in 
Rube is going to be like one of his big objectives this year. He's off to a blazing start in the classics. It was the first real glimpse we've had of Ghana as a great classics writer, and I can't wait to see what else he can produce. I agree with you about Ghana. In terms of results, he's got decent results and he's got an hour record as well. But I think that his results aren't equal to his ability to affect a bike race. I remember in the Giro d'Italia that Igan Bernal won, he was bending that entire race to the force of his will. And I just remember thinking then that he's going to be real trouble in some big races, that guy. So overall, James, um, in the pantheon of great Milan San Remo's, uh, was this a great Milan San Remo? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you could almost say that almost every year, you know. It's just such an exciting race. It's such an exciting race. It's spine tingling to watch those last 20K. Yeah, for me, I always enjoy Milan San Remo because of those reasons. But... I felt that there was a lack of suspense this time, just purely because of the dynamic of the race. What I really love about my favourite Milan San Remo is the ones where there is doubt, there is politics, there's people not riding all out and it. That sense of unpredictability. This time I knew from halfway down the Poggio descent that Vanderpool had it sewn up and I started switching off a bit. I accepted the race was over. I like Milan San Remo when the race goes right to the very end, as it so often does. So for me, though, it had a great winner, no doubt. And I think this will not be Vanderpool's last monument victory by a long way. I don't know Matthew Vanderpool. I photograph him a lot, but I don't know him. I remember spoken with him, and I just say hats off. I had so much respect for what he did. I thought it was a thing of beauty. Dan Lloyd is a former professional road cyclist who is now a presenter for GCN. He rode for continental teams like Endurosport, Flanders, Giant, DFL, and Danpost. He then signed for a Cervelo test team in 2009 and rode for them for two years then survived one season of the Cervelo-Garmin merger in 2011, before winding down his career with IG Sigma Sport in 2012. He joined GCN at the end of 2012 and has been working as a presenter and commentator ever since. Dan, welcome to Relo Conversations. Thank you very much for having me. And before we get on to this year's classics, Dan, I'd like to talk to you about your own experience of racing in Belgium, both on smaller teams and then for Cervelo and Garmin. So when you were a young cyclist, uh, before you even turned pro, did you aspire to these races or was the Tour de France and or the Giro maybe more your inspiration? I mean, the Tour was obviously the one that was most covered here in the UK. It was quite difficult sometimes to get any insight or coverage into the cobbled classics. But I sort of came late to coverage anyway because I'd been into mountain biking. So I was watching the World Cups. So I do have early memories of the Cobble Classics, and I particularly remember being very excited by the Tour of Flanders. I just remember on a couple of years going out training at the same time that I knew they were starting their race, doing four hours, feeling shattered, turning the TV on when coverage started, and, and they still take, had three hours to go. Taking that arm warmers off. Yeah, exactly. And you just sort of think, how can they have done you know, way more kilometres than I've done? the same duration and still have three hours of really hard racing, the hardest part of the race still to go. So it sort of blew my mind of the men of Flanders, as we used to say, because we didn't have a women's race back then. It was just such a hardcore part of bike racing. And I don't think I ever thought I would get there to do those races, but certainly as a viewer, they really excited me, yeah. And what was it about them that excited you? Just the fact that it would just it would blow to pieces I'm still reminded of this every year because I think we get accustomed in January and February to these hot weather races in Argentina and Australia and the UAE etc and whenever you turn the TV on for the start of Omloop coverage or Kuna Brussels Kuna coverage you just see the races already split to pieces and there's a 100k still to go and you're reminded actually this is what proper Belgian or Northern European racing is all about. It just splits to pieces. It's really hard to control. It's gritty. You know, the weather seems to have got better over the last decade or two. Those races are what it's all about to me. The strongest come to the fore. They might have to expose themselves early or make a move early. I just, I've always found them fascinating to watch. That's interesting because I think most people find the sport glamorous first and then find out that it's mm. really hard and tough. You seem to have come into it from the opposite direction. Yeah, perhaps. I don't know whether that's a, just my mindset or coming from a mountain biking background. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it was. But you know, back in those days, for me, it was Schmiel and 
Museo and those kinds of riders, like big and strong, and you could just see the raw power. Because you know, back then they tend to have quite low cadences, wouldn't they? So just grind up the Moor <laughs> or grind up the Paterberg or whatever it might be. And again, like I said, I didn't expect to ever be racing them myself, but I would always make sure I was free that Sunday afternoon to watch them. And when did you first race in Belgium? I joined a small third division team called Flanders in 2004. I don't think I'd raced in Belgium before that. And it was a team that had been second division and the budget had fallen, but they were still getting invites to some fairly decent races. So I did the three days of Depana, and that was really my first time racing against people like Hincapi or I think Bona might have been there as well. I was probably the same age as Pogacar is now. I was 24. <laughs> At the time, I felt like young and I wouldn't say up and coming, but still developing and, and getting towards where I wanted to be. And so to be racing, or at least in the same bunch alongside those, those sorts of riders that you watched on TV or saw in the magazines, it felt pretty special. And um, you know, going over the Harcook, I remember entering that just behind George Hincapi in the top 10. I mean, it wasn't a really crucial point of the race overall, but it was still the first point where people were saying, I want to be in good position. And it was little moments like that that always kept me going. Like, you know, if I can get into that position there and I followed the wheels all right, then maybe I might have a future in this sport at some point. And did you find it hard too? Because racing in Belgium is famously tough and tactical and positional and strategic. So it's it's not something you can be naturally good at. I guess you have to learn those things. You do have to learn it. The positioning side of things always came quite naturally to me. I've always described the hierarchy within cycling as a pyramid where the top of the top, you know, the Sagans, the Pagachas, the Van Arts of this world, they've got everything. They've got the desire, they've got the motivation, they have the physiology, they have the bike handling skills and they have the tactics. And as you go down either side, you eventually get to someone like me on one side who can position themselves well, but when it comes to the crunch, doesn't have the power and the physiology. On the other side, you might have somebody that's got all the physiology, but maybe doesn't have the desire to train hard or they can't position themselves in the right place at the right time. So I had that one aspect that I could generally be in the right place at the right time. And I lived in Flanders, not far from Aldenada for a couple of years. So you quickly learn the roads and the corners and where you need to be. And I used to love looking at maps. You know, this is 2004 and five, so we did start to have internet mapping, but I would always pour over maps for training rides in France if I was down there. And I think I did the same when I was in Belgium and more latterly when we had Google Maps, etc. look at it more and more. And at the time it was more crucial then to know these important corners and a change of direction than perhaps it is now. It's not that it's not important, but you get that information far more easily in the modern era than you used to. And were you studying and learning consciously or was it just going in by osmosis? I would say consciously because actually I remember a number of different races that I would go to and you'd do like a recon and I'd find that my mind would drift and there'd be 10Ks went past like, I'm supposed to be actually concentrating on this so that I know what's coming up in the actual race, but I've just been chatting. Whereas I think around Flanders, because I loved the races so much, I was just consciously taking it in thinking this might be useful in the coming months years or whatever it might be and what's your experience of the tour of flanders i don't remember what year i first would have watched it i'd imagine late 90s because like i said i remember the sort of museo and schmil years and then i first raced it in 2009 so i'd been to watch it with my my family in 2007 when i was with dfl so we'd done a couple of the warm-up races i think we'd done e3 but as a second division British team, you know, we weren't invited to the Tour of Flanders. So I'd seen it on the roadside, I'd seen it on TV, and then, and then 2009 was the first of the three years that I ended up doing it. And what was your experience of the race? It was the best experience I ever had on a bike, I think. And even off it, before the start. At that point, I'm coming up to 29 years of age, so had got to this point in my life and career, I thought I might never get to that team that allows me to do those races. And even if I do, I might not get selected for the race. So for me, you know, a win was being in Bruges for the start. And I was already pinching myself then. And I think the, the Bruges, I haven't been to the Antwerp start, but the Bruges one was fantastic because there's one big courtyard where all the buses were parked up. And then there was a, I wouldn't say it was an alleyway because it was probably a reasonably wide street road but it felt like an alleyway because of all the crowds that were lined behind the barriers so you'd ride down this and there was already a great atmosphere at that point and then you arrive in this other market square to this huge platform where they're introducing all the teams and riders and are just packed full of people so just to ride up onto that stage with my teammates and be announced 
by the speaker. Yeah, I had goosebumps right from the very beginning. Yeah, and the things you—you're actually quite good at it. I mean, you—you—you you, you weren't, you, you weren't in the front. <laughs> I, so I shouldn't sound so surprised. I know. Well, I? I mean, Ed not of only course. sounds surprised on the podcast. There was a, a sense of surprise on his face as well. Yeah, my eyebrows were raised a bit. I should say, of course, you were very good at the Tour of Flanders, and you came. 45th in your two finishes, but five minutes down on the leaders, but mm. a long way in front of a lot of the finishers. So and you you did your three tours of Flanders on the old yeah. route. So tell us about the route, the process of racing. And of course, you were quite good at it, but you were racing you were, as a teammate for rides who genuinely had a yeah. good chance of winning. And I think Hausler must have been second one of the years you raced Yeah, in 2009, without, that was the first year. Yep, so without your help, obviously, he might not have finished yeah, that high. Yeah, I have won. So what was your experience of the actual race? Uh, again, great. I was on a really good day. We had a real clear plan and strategy for where we wanted to be at the front. And we were full of confidence because although it was the first year of that team, we'd been performing really well from the very beginning. So I think Roger Hammond won the first day of racing of the year in Qatar. And then we had Tour, I think, was winning in, in California. So we got off on, on a really good start. We were right up there on loop. I didn't do that race, but you know, just full of confidence, which makes a big difference going into a race like Flanders. I remember it took a really, really long time for the breakaway to go, sort of 80, 90 kilometres of attacking. You know, we hadn't planned to get anyone in it, but it meant that the breakaway didn't have a huge gap by the time we then had to start racing. So, you know, we had 20 kilometres to take clothes off that we didn't need and, and get feed bags, etc. I remember that I, you know, our first meeting point, as Andreas used to say, Andreas Clear, was some way before the foot of the Quaramon, and I hadn't quite got there. So I was sort of panicking, trying to barge past people and get to the front, which I eventually managed over the top. And back then, we'd do the Quaramonts, uh, and then it went on to Ronde van Vlaanderen Strats, rather than just taking a left at the top of the Quaramon. And I'd managed to get to the front there. So by the time we got to the Paterberg, which we only did once, I think, at the time, I was sort of top 10. I was on the wheel of Bonin, Pozzato, thinking I've just I've just made it here. Like, you know, I'm just feeling really good. I probably was overexcited at that point because I think there was still 80, 90 kilometres still to go. But having never been in that race before or that position, I was thinking oh, I'm, I'm feeling great. Anyway, down the other side, there's that 10 kilometres or so between the foot of the Paterberg descent and the start of the Koppenberg. It's where Dylan van Baal has gone on the attack for the last three, four, five years. And when the group came together there, there was probably 25 of us. And Andreas said, if you've got the legs to go now, it's a great place to go on the attack. So I attacked there. Sylvain Chavanel came with me, Quincy Arto, Leif Host, who'd been second two or three times by that point, and a couple of others. And uh, we caught the breakaway, the early breakaway on the Koppenberg. But again, you know, for me, being at the lead of the Tour of Flanders up the Koppenberg with that atmosphere... It was like another goosebumps moment. And I, I had got too excited because when it got to the Berendries, Chavanel attacked and I, I couldn't go with him. Then we got to the Valkenberg and I remember Pozzato came past. He was on the wheel of Bonin. He was on the wheel of Stein de Volder. So I was kind of there, you know, I, I was sort of watching as a spectator riding at that point as they zoomed past me. We used to have these videos that followed the back behind the scenes story, etc., called Beyond the Peloton. And there's a bit in that where you can hear me on the radio on the way into the moor saying, I'm f***ed. And, and Andreas comes back saying, everyone's feeling the same. Just do what you can do. Um, so I, I helped where I could on the way into the moor and then I, I was done. But I got my 45th and Heiner got his second and I think Tor crashed near the finish line there. Right. And what are those climbs like at the real sharp end of the race? They're great if you're feeling good and they're horrific if you're on a bad day or out of position. I really liked to climb like the Paterberg because it was so short and punchy and that was kind of what I was good at. The moor I always hated because it drags up for a long time and saps the energy before you even get to the hard bit. So I had nothing left to kick on by the time we got to that point. Whereas other riders that are stronger, you know, they'll relish that sort of thing that the people like me that you want to weed out of the peloton are going to suffer when it gets really hard because they've already had to make an effort before the really steep section. So yeah, if you're on a good day, then, then they're fantastic. And if you find yourself out of position, it's just depressing almost because there's nothing you can do to get back on terms. And what was your impression of the you know riders like Boonen who was invariably towards the front of the... Tour Flanders champions. He had an aura about him within the peloton by that point in his career. You know, he'd won a number of monuments by then. He was the local king, as it were, of the peloton. So people always give someone of that 
stature a little bit more room if he wants to come through and be towards the front then he's going to get there easier than somebody that's not of that stature he was just an incredible athlete though you know had he, he was that top of the pyramid that I talked about before he had the physiology he was obviously incredibly knowledgeable about the local roads having grown up around there so he had everything going I mean I, they came past me at warp speed on the Falkenberg but I remember earlier that year at the at the Tour of Qatar, you know, like I said, we'd been doing really well. All of us were always at the front in the, in the front echelon. And there was one day there where we, we'd got everyone in the front echelon and we were all in one line. And Andrea said, right now we go half road, which means that rather than going all the way to the left-hand side, the wind was coming from the left, that we're going to stop in the middle of the road and sprint and move forward. And that means that everyone panics because all of a sudden you haven't got the whole road for shelter, you've only got half of it. And Bonin was in a horrible position at that point. He'd already gone through, he was on the left-hand side of the road, but he was one of the only riders that managed to get onto our wheel and stay within the group. So I think the group was, let's say, eight strong with five of us, and he was one of the other ones. And there's not much you can do about someone like him when he's on that kind of form. You know, all of the tactics in the world, all of the sort of numbers within a team that might be able to go up the road, like he was just another level. Yeah. And you mentioned Andreas Clear. His nickname was GPS, right? Because mm-hmm. he studied, learned those roads and knew them as well as anybody. And even now as a DS, Jonathan Walters describes him as the eighth man, the kind yeah. of extra man in the team who makes the difference. His, his knowledge was incredible, wasn't it? It was, and it still is incredible. I think he's half German, half Swedish, but he'd moved to Belgium at the point in his career where he realised that those races were the ones that he might be able to forge a career from. So he knew the roads incredibly well, but he's he's just got that kind of brain anyway, I think. And he was just so calm within races. Obviously, he was talented. He wasn't on the same level as, as a Tom Bonham, but he was the next one down. So he always knew that if he had a really good day and one of the top favourites didn't, that he might be able to win one of the monuments on the cobbles. It never quite happened for him. I think he had a Ghent Wevelgen win. So he was that kind of quality of rider, but he was just he was just a leader when he started talking in the team meeting, you'd almost listen to him more than the actual sports directors, at least for me at the time anyway, because it was just clear that he he had a plan in his mind that he knew was the best for the riders that he was with in that team. And generally what he said would happen did. And I think it's changed a lot since that era. I think you can still try to be clever, but I think as we keep seeing it, it's always the favourites at the forefront. It's very rare. I don't bet as much on cycling as I used to, but... You used to get outsiders that would come in fairly often, but if you look at the top three of these of these races, and I think we'll talk about San Remo at some point, but those top four started as four of the top favourites, and that seems to be across the board at a lot of these races now. And so I'm not saying that you can't play the numbers within a team or you can't try and be clever, but the races just open up far earlier, and so if you haven't got the strength, it doesn't matter how clever you are, you're, you're just not going to be in there in the finale. Yeah, You mentioned that you would be elbowing people aside and forcing your way to the front. You don't seem the type, Dan. You seem very unassuming. I'm not really the type. But on a bike. Yeah, no, I'm not I'm not really that sort of type, but I am I was a bit I was I was far from angry on the bike, but I I did enjoy the the jostling for position. I don't really know why that was. But you get that with a lot of rides. I mean Roger Hammond's not dissimilar. He could be incredibly angry within the peloton. If he was your teammate, that was fantastic. If he wasn't, it was horrible. And I'd imagine there's a lot of riders like that now that that off the bike are very calm characters and then put a race number on their back and put them in a, in a peloton in a race scenario. They're a different sort of beast. But yeah, I, I just in, enjoyed the jostling for position, you know, even coming in towards sprints and stuff. I, I just seemed to be quite good at not putting the brakes on and finding little gaps where I could just keep my momentum so that I didn't have to rely on my lack of power coming in towards the finish. And you rode it two more times, the Tour of Flanders, mm-hmm. that is. What was your subsequent experience? I don't remember a huge amount about 2010. I'd been going all right on the lead into that one, but 2011, I'd had a horrible time in 2011. I just could, there was something not quite right. I remember on the lead into Paranese, almost wanting to call the team up and say, I'm just not good enough. There was, I couldn't put my finger on it was, on what it was. I, I felt absolutely fine off the bike, you know, no sniffle, just nothing wrong but I just didn't feel myself on the bike. It sort of turned around in Paris-Nice, but then I had some bad luck during the first cobbled races to the point where I wasn't even sure I was going to get selected for Flanders. Um, But what I remember from that day and what a lot of other people now remember because of the video is that we had a plan 
And that plan was to go up the Nocteberg or the Côte de Trieux, as it's called in French, and just towards the top, really accelerate very hard. Because at the top there, you turn right, then you get onto the Ronde van Flanderen Strat, and then it's the new Aquaramont. So that huge main road is incredibly fast. And at the end of that, it, you're very close to the outer Aquaramont. So we thought we might catch people out, accelerate quickly, all be in the front for the outer Aquaramont. So I did that, leading the peloton towards the top of the Nocteberg. And I think because it hadn't been that hard up to that point, and we'd gone up the climb fairly steady, I had a lot of adrenaline because I knew what our plan was, and I always had quite a bit of energy and power left. So I, I went really fast, far faster than I've ever been into that right-hand bend, and as it turned out, too fast. So I stacked it, and that was my job done in about 30 seconds, I think, because I, I never got back to the front. And I, think, I, I don't think I finished that race. Uh, no, you did DNF on the, yeah. on the results. But yeah, I, I remember, because I wrote the book about that, and I, I remember contacting him about this, and I remember watching that video. I mean, I watched the video <laughs> of the race you know, hundreds of times, and so I've seen you crash on that corner. <laughs> yeah, well, do you know what? I went back there last year. We did a, we did a documentary on GCM Plus about how to win the Tour of Flanders. And they wanted to get a lot of different angles of me going around the corner. So, I mean, I'm not very fit now, but I was sprinting as hard as I could into it. And I managed to get around it every time. Yeah, it's 90 I, I degrees, mean, isn't it? It's not, I mean, I, I guess you must have just caught a patch of dust. I don't know. Or, I, mean, I think I probably was going a lot of, faster in that race situation and with you know, the better form that I had 10 years ago than I do now but yeah it was embarrassing but um, 11 what 12 years on now I should be over it it's there forever on the internet it is to, it to is show the, show the children <laughs> so these days you cover the races as a, as a journalist as a presenter as a commentator how has your understanding of these races evolved since you retired it's evolved in a couple of respects. I think it's had to evolve to understand what I was talking about a few moments ago, that it, it, you can't be quite as clever in these races, that maybe the points where we would have meeting points perhaps aren't quite as important as they used to be. The race opens up a lot earlier, so you've got to, when you're thinking about what might happen and when, start thinking a lot, a lot earlier, I think, than you used to have to. One of the things that took me a while to get my head around after I'd finished racing and started commentating and talking about racing I think I wasn't very confident in the, in the initial stages. And the reason for that was because where I hadn't got any good results really at these big races, I didn't feel like I should be able to criticise the riders that were far better than me. You know, How can I criticise someone that's just come fifth when my best result is 45th and that was a good result for me? And it took me some years really to get my head around thinking, I kind of know, you know, I didn't have the physiology maybe to be up there, but I think I had the head to know what to do and when, that maybe I should be more confident and say, well, actually, Funderful was stupid there. Like, he should have been saving energy. He was wasting energy here, there and everywhere. So that was one of the things I had to learn over the first few years that I finished racing. You know, other people are really good at it immediately. They don't care what people think or if they get a backlash on social media. But um, I think a lot of my head was thinking about what my former peers would be thinking about what I said and whether I had the right to say it or not, as opposed to what I actually thought. Yeah. And did you just feel guilty criticising what you know would have been a colleague two, three years previously? It is difficult because I can be a bit of a hypocrite on, on that front in some respects because... I'll often write back to people that are critical of our commentators and, you know, I won't be harsh back, but I'll just say, you know, this is a person and they'll probably read that because you've tagged them into it and they're likely to be offended and you don't know what sort of character they are. In the next day, I might be commentating and, and saying about a rider that I think they've ridden badly or done the wrong thing. So I try and do it in the right way. And I think once you're in the limelight in, in any respect in the world, whether it's a celebrity status as Hollywood star or a sports person for sports people in particular no one really gets into it I don't think or very few get into it because they want the adulation they want the spotlight it comes because they're so good at their sport that a lot of people know who they are and commentators and journalists will criticize what they do if it's wrong and so you know if I'm criticizing riders I, I try to do it in a way that's not overly critical because they're a person, they probably realise themselves, but you want to be able to explain it to the public so that they can see where somebody might have got it wrong. And people are passionate about the sport. You know, you and I are very passionate about it and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of other fans that they want to know what's 
we think about it or what other people think about it. Yeah, it's a sort of fine line to tread. I'm still sort of deciding in my head to this day the best way to go about it. And what do you try to do when you're commentating? What's your USP or what's your modus operandi about with, with commentary? I change it based on who I'm commentating with. So sometimes I'm doing lead commentary, not often. I tend to do lead commentary during the Grand Tours in the middle of the stages to give you know, in the Giro d'Italia to give Rob Hatch a rest because we've now got coverage from kilometre zero every day at the world. So that'll be to give Carlton a rest in the middle. And then other times I'm I'm co-commentator. So for Tour of Flanders, for example, we'll have Carlton commentating at the start and finish and then I'll take over in the middle to give him a break so that he's fresh for the finale. And so if I'm with, uh, I don't know, Robbie McEwen, then you want to ask him questions that he knows the road so well. So again, he might not have got the best result, but that's not because he didn't know how to. It was just because he didn't have the legs to do that. He was a sprinter, but he's really knowledgeable. So you want to get that knowledge out of him. And he's very good at that anyway, but I think you can ask the right questions. And then obviously if I'm co-commentator, then I'm spending less time talking and more time really looking at the screen. It's very easy to criticise commentators, but there's a lot that you're having to think about, especially you know, as the lead commentator. You're trying to look at the screen. You're trying to look at what they've got coming up next. If it's a quiet time, you might be looking at notes for something to say. And so often you find there's a crash and you're looking down at your notes because nothing's been going on. And all of the people viewing think, why on earth have they said nothing about this big crash? So that's when you need the co-com and say, oh, crash, and it gets your attention back onto it. So yeah, I tend to sort of decide what my role is going to be depending on, on who I'm with because everybody's got their own style and way of going about things and I'll try and be a bit of a comedian and, and fit in with that. And the audience that you're commentating for ranges from somebody who may have just switched on cycling for the first time in their lives all the way through to nerds who know mm -hmm. more than you and I and how do you get around the that challenge of communicating effectively to both those kinds of people? It's difficult, ironically the most difficult race of all to take that into account for is the Tour de France because the Tour de France is the pinnacle of the sport. There are more ardent fans than the rest of the season that are actually watching hours and hours of coverage of that. But there are also more casual fans or brand new to cycling that are watching as well. So it's always that difficulty of either alienating people new to the sport because everything you talk about is completely over their heads or alienating the people that want a more detailed analysis or stuff about tactics etc thankfully we've now got five hours a day so you've got enough time to appeal to both uh, but it is again it's a tightrope walk of, of trying to not alienate either side again it's just something that you end up having to accept that let, let's go back 30 years if you're commentating and you say something that's incorrect firstly there's not really many ways of people being able to find out that you're incorrect in the first place <laughs> secondly if they happen to have more knowledge of that rider because they grew up with them or more knowledge of the local area, they then didn't have a way to tell you were wrong. So we've now got to this point where, as you know, people are very happy to tell you that you're wrong. And there's always going to be somebody that lives in that area that knows the climb better than you, or there's always going to be somebody that grew up around that rider that knows more about them than you. And so you just have to grow a thick skin and think, well, I'm going to do the best I can in terms of researching this race, researching all the riders. But there's 180 of them. At the Tour, it's the easiest one because... You know most of them. You might get a knocker a courser where you sort of think, I don't know. Or you might get a Tour of Taiwan that we've had on recently where you barely know anybody and it makes it, you know, those are the most difficult races to commentate on. So, yeah, it, again, it's, it's a difficult one and you're never going to please everybody. You know, I spend a lot of my time looking at feedback of all of our commentators. And that's not just on Twitter at Handles. You know, I've got columns on TweetDeck with their names so I can see that when they've not been tagged, there's, there's chat about them. I look at forums, etc., because I just want to get an overall idea of... But then, again, it's, it's not really an overall idea. It's an idea from people that love cycling enough to go onto a, a cycling forum and, and talk about stuff or to Discord or to Reddit or whatever it might be. And, and my one conclusion is that, that nobody appeals to everybody. You know, there isn't a single commentator, probably in any sport, that every single person likes. And there will be when they retire. You know, it's, it's a bit like Murray Walker back in the day. There was this point, you know, Murray Walker was the most famous Formula One commentator in the UK. And he had loads of critics at the time. But I bet if you talked about him now, 
people would hark back, oh yeah, Murray, you know, you really got the people going and it was made the race so exciting in the end. You're always going to have critics out there and you just have to sort of take a, an overall lay of the land as to how people feel about it. And do you spend a lot of time researching riders and collating results or do you just turn on the internet when you're commentating? And Oh no, I, I, I like to do a decent job. <laughs> Again, for something like the Tour of Flanders, I'll know most of the riders or I'll have previous notes. So I spend a lot more time with that looking at at the course direction, what climbs are there, what cobbled sections, where the wind direction might be on each and every one, to get more of a picture of where I think that the race might start or where the, the most dangerous points are. You know, not necessarily the most obvious ones, you know, everyone knows the climbs, but the bits in between. But yeah, I do, and, and as you probably know, I like stats as well. I just get quite obsessed with, more recently it's been Pogaccia, because I just think it's unbelievable you know, what that guy is winning in such a short period of time. Before him, it was Sagan because I was looking at how many times he's finished top three in races and stages, how many days in total he spent of his whole career in a leader's jersey. I just think there's always these comparisons to days gone by, but I, I just quite like looking at all the stats of, of how people are doing. Yeah, no, I agree. It's fascinating. And uh, the rider who turned me on to that kind of in the modern era was actually Marianne Voss when I was working at Cycle Sport. Uh, my colleague at the time, Andy McGrath, just pointed me towards her cycling quotient yeah. page and it was just a, a bunch of, a ones, of and ones, sing, yeah, yeah. ones and single figures and I just remember thinking how unusual that was because at that point the, the men's sport which dominated the uh, media at that point mm. was much more specialised so you, riders like Boonen would have those good results in the in the classics but then the rest of the year it would be 20s and 30s and 40s yeah. and no one even was watching him and the Grand Tour winners were the same they were doing their thing in the Grand Tours but you wouldn't see them in the classics whereas now there is that overlap, isn't there? There is, and, and that's absolutely fantastic. Like I, I just think it's brilliant that we've got a guy that's won the Tour de France a couple of times that's desperate to win San Remo, desperate to win the Tour of Flanders, because we don't have to go back many years to a point where Consador and Froome would barely even race. I think between Consador and Froome, they won one one-day race. That was a lot of ones. Giro Emilia or something like that, Consador won. And so you were used to just seeing them come out for the big stage races, and in particular the Tour de France and dominating there or, or being right up there there. But I, I just love the fact that these riders now, you know, doing fewer days of racing, but they want to win a broad spectrum of big road races and they're more than capable of doing that. It, you know, Because I was in real fear that the, the sport would get quite boring because there seemed to be a formula for winning the Tour de France that Sky had worked out. And to be honest, I couldn't see a way of... For me, that formula was perfect. Like, you know, if you wanted to win the race, it worked. It made a lot of sense to me. And But my fear was that that was the end of that. It was just going to become really boring. So I'm relieved as much as anything to see how the sport's developed over the last three or four years. I would say the sport is more exciting than it was for a long time. It is right now. I mean, this is a conversation I've had with Killian Kelly, amongst others. It's exciting now because we were used to people waiting for specific times, maybe in the last 20Ks, and you knew that you weren't going to see the big champions really go for it before that point. And we've now got to the point where you see Avonapool going in Liège on La Redoute. Like, how long is it since we saw that carried off? Or Pogaccia in Strade Bianca last year, or, or Pidcock this year, or you know whoever it might be. Our discussion is, will that get boring? The question is whether we're going to find long-range attacks boring at some point in the future. I don't know. It's true, but it's a good question. I guess each generation finds a way of beating the current way of winning, don't they? So yeah. we'll be waiting soon for ways to combat that long loan break. Yeah, I've been trying to get my head around why it did change. I'm not sure if it, if it was even a conscious thing necessarily. I, I just think Van der Poel's winning Amstel Gold was a classic example. He, he won that not by being clever. He was stupid. He attacked with 50Ks to go, got caught and spat out the back and then gave us one of the best race finishes in, in the history of the sport. I think it's just this generation that seems to have no fear of losing somehow. I think Van Aert is a bit more conservative in his approach sometimes. Not always, but I mean, again, that feels like a stupid thing to say after the, the tour last year where he's in the yellow jersey and attacking 20 times from kilometre zero to 30. But I think particularly in the one-day races, he, he seems to be sometimes more concerned with losing than trying to figure out how to win, even if that means he, he might lose. That brings us on to the 2023 classic season. 
So before we get on to the cobble classics, we're a few days on from Milan San Remo. Had time to digest the result and the race. What's your take on it now you've had a few days? My take on it is that <laughs> this contradicts what I've just said, that, that Van der Poel was clever and calculating on that day. Because he said in his post-race interview that he knew from the Cappy that he felt really good and he'd communicated that to his team and to Soren Krauansen in particular. Because over the top of the depressor, I was thinking, what on earth is he doing? Like he, he made that sudden dash towards the front of the group and led the peloton down a descent, or for much of it. And then he was in a group of three with his teammate Klau Anson and Matteo Trentin and chatting on the front. I think, why are you in the wind? I mainly was thinking this because he was my pick on the breakaway that day. Like we, we, <laughs> we each have a pick. I was third pick and he was still available. So I went for Vanderpool. So I'm obviously there thinking, save your energy. Like, why are you riding in the wind? I mean, I don't think he was riding particularly hard there. But if you look at from that point towards the Poggio, up the Poggio, he didn't do a single thing. And I think he'd get away with that because he hadn't shown much form in Strada Bianca or Terreno Adriatico. So nobody else, none of his rivals knew how good he was feeling that day. So he could use them. But I think in years gone by, if he'd been feeling that good, he might have got bored in the Cipressa. He certainly would have got bored at some point on the Poggio. I think a few years ago, once Pogaccia went and then Van Aert took them up to the wheel of Ghana, who'd followed Pogaccia, I think Van der Poel would have got overexcited and just went then. And it might not have worked. But I think the way he played it on Saturday showed sort of a, a maturity and, and perhaps a knowledge that the years are running out to win these big races. You know, he's, he's not old, but he's late 20s now. He's won two monuments before Saturday, but they were both the same one. You know, he wants to win the biggest races. And I think he's now got to the point where he can get his head around, I don't need to win at Torino to prove anything, even though I find it fun. I'm going to make sure that I concentrate all of my mind, all of my physical efforts on the big races. So we've seen a pattern this year in the big one-day races in Omloop, a lone winner going for a long way back. And the second group, not quite cohering for one, mainly because there were Jumbo and Visma riders everywhere. Yeah. Um BNK, Tom Pidcock went away and the group behind easily could have caught him if they'd worked together, didn't. And in Milan Sonoma, a little different because Van der Poel did, I think he was the strongest in the race. But still, with those three riders behind, they did look a bit tentative riding through. And that, that's all it takes in uh, Milan San Remo. So the theme is individual lone winners taking the ball by the horns. Yeah. And the second group is much losing the race as the winner winning the race. Do you see that continuing through the couple classics? I wouldn't be surprised because, as you said, it clearly works. It's very, very rare that you get a group behind the leader who works equally. And it's not long before somebody gets pissed off and says, well, he's not working as much as I am, so why should I work that much? Then you lose 5Ks now, which you've got to get the momentum back again. Or like Omloop, where you've got a Laporte that's a teammate of the rider out front who starts to annoy them because he just sat on the back. They know why he's there. They know why he's not working. And he starts to come through, but not come through to the front. So I think people will be watching that, and they have done for the last few years, and saying, well, if you get out front first, you might well have some motorbikes as well, which you know, give you a bit of a shelter from the wind. And you know that there's going to be a bit of dilly-dallying behind so I wouldn't be at all surprised to see people go long again. It'd be interesting to see how Pogaccia plays it at Flanders this year. Because I was writing our preview for it the other day. And I watched back to last year. And the way he went up the Quaramont the first time was unbelievable. The speed that he went to the group that had got away. It wasn't the early break. It was one that had gone with 80, 90 k's to go. And passed every single person. But I think, again, you know, if you look at the way he rode San Remo this year compared to last. He's learnt that he needs to... Even with his talent, he needs to burn his matches at the right time rather than just striking them all off one by one and hoping for the best. He can do that in the smaller races, in inverted commas. But when you're up against a Fan Art and a Van der Poel and Al Philippe and all the other big riders, you've got to make sure that he uses energy at the right time, particularly because they're faster in a sprint. The big one is Jumbo Visma, isn't it? I mean, they are the new quick step. I think Fan Art's in a difficult situation because... I would liken him to Tom Bonin in his heyday. You know, we saw Stein de Volder win the Tour of Flanders twice because he was a teammate of Tom Bonin. Everyone's eyes, ours, the other riders are on Tom Bonin. De Volder's strong, slips away, wins it twice on his own. And you could definitely see that happening with Dylan van Baal or even a Van Hoydonk or Ben Oates. You know, they've got so many riders that are incredibly strong, haven't won a huge amount because they don't have the same sprint as Van Aert but can take advantage of Van Aert being in the team. So it's almost like these signings they've made over the last few years 
you look at them initially and think, wow, what a help that's going to be to fan art. But I wonder actually whether fan art's more the help to them and will be in these coming cobbled classics. That I say, I do feel like pressure is, is starting to mount, mainly because he's Belgian. But when you start to look at his strike rate at the biggest races, one day races in the world, it's falling short of Pogaccia and Van der Poel. He's consistently high, isn't he? But it's always in the top ten, almost always. You know, all of them are. I was looking the other day. I think I tweeted about it that between them they have now done thirty-five monuments, and they've been in the top ten thirty times. They've never not finished. They've never been lower than twenty-second in any of them. They're incredibly consistent. But we've now got Pogaccia on three, Van der Poel on three, Van Aert on one. And that difference between one and three, him to Van der Poel, is the couple of inches that separated them at the Tour of Flanders a couple of years ago. Had he won that, they'd have two apiece and it wouldn't look the same way. But that's how it is. And I think that the pressure is going to mount on him because for Van der Poel, well, I've got a monument this year. I'd like to get another one, but you know, I've already got one in the bag. For Van Aert, he hasn't taken a single win this year. He's got a really, really strong team, but he's yet to win a cobbled monument. And that pressure is going to mount and mount and mount until he does win one. And lastly, you have specialised in the past in quite obscure and very successful bets. You must follow the results in quite a detailed fashion to build the knowledge to be able to do that. Yeah, I've, I've always had quite an obsession with results. In fact, somewhere at home in the loft, I will have multiple binders of mountain biking results from the 90s. And I used to love that, you know, some of the results people would give you individual lap times. I used to love sort of looking at people's lap times, whether they'd been consistent or really blown up or whatever it might be. And then when I was racing on the road, you know, I really couldn't wait for the results of a race to come down. I would scour down and think, that guy's done really well. He's in 33rd. Like, that was a good result for him. So I'd probably do it a little bit less now. And I think, you know, from a betting point of view, I said this earlier, but you tend to get the favourites filling the top three spots. And I think that the bookmakers have got wiser to it as well. You know, the, the, the really long odds that you might get on a rider that I'd think, actually, they've got quite a good, not good chance, but they have got a chance of winning today's stage. You don't get any more. You know, it, one of the bets you were talking about was on Jean-Christophe Perrault at the Tour de France one year. I think he was 500 to one and he came third. But you're not going to get a 500 to one shot coming third at the Tour now. You know, if Pogaccia and Vinegar don't crash, it's almost guaranteed they'll be on the podium. Whoever the other rider is, is probably not going to be much longer than 20 to 1. So I sort of lost interest in that because the value didn't seem to be there. But I still look at the odds just to sort of see where people are at. So yeah, I, I just like numbers, really. That's why I like the stats. It's kind of why I liked betting for a while because I was just interested in the numbers side of things. Yeah. Dan, we're going to have you on in a, again in a couple of weeks. So we'll see how our thoughts will have unrolled in Gembabagam uh, E3, yep. etc. Looking forward to that. May the wind be at your back and at the backs of the riders you bet on. Thank you very much. I'm interrupting this podcast to remind all listeners to subscribe to Rouleur, the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Our latest edition, out now, is Rouleur 118, the classics issue. The classics are the beating heart of world cycling. These grippy, tough, atmospheric races in the chilly north of a European spring are full of character and excitement. Yes, the Tour de France is colourful and glamorous, but the classics are real life, a kitchen sink drama compared to the operatic grandeur of the Tour and Giro d'Italia. We're celebrating the classics in Rouleau 118. The magazine features an exclusive interview with Eritrean rider Binyam Germay. Germay is one of cycling's most prominent rising stars, he won Gent-Wevelgem and a stage in the Giro d'Italia last year, and he tells us he is aiming even higher this year. But results aside, as the most successful black African rider the sport has yet seen, Guillemet is smashing down barriers and paving the way for many more to follow. Also in Ruler 118, interviews with Movistar's new signing Leanne Lippert and Spanish classic stalwart Immanuel Erviti, who has ridden more editions of Paris-Roubaix and the Tour of Flanders than any other current pro. How do you win the Tour of Flanders? Seven different champions, including Lizzie Dignan, Tom Boonen and Johan Museo, tell us how they achieved victory in the Ronde. And we've taken a deep dive into Flemish cycling culture and visited the best cycling bars in Flanders. Rouleau 118 is available now. To support our journalism and receive a magazine every six weeks, please subscribe. Go to rouleau.cc, hit the subscribe button and enter the code PODCAST15. That's PODCAST15. 
to get 15% off our regular subscription price. And now, back to the show. Milan's Sanremo wasn't the only venerable old classic to take place last weekend. One of the oldest women's races, Trofeo Alfredo Binder, was on Sunday, and it was won by Trek Segafredo's Shirin Van Anrooy. Van Anrooy finished 23 seconds ahead of a small group of sprint, which was won by her teammate Elisa Balsamo, who is also defending champion. Rachel Jarry is Ruler's staff writer. She watched the race. Rachel, looked like a very good day for Trek Segafredo. Yes, I think Trek Segafredo executed their tactics perfectly. It was an interesting lineup for them because they're kind of without their older, more experienced riders like Elisa Longa Borghini wasn't there. Ellen van Dyke and Lizzie Dagnan are still away on maternity. Well, van Dyke's pregnant and Lizzie's still on like maternity leave, coming back to fitness. So they had Gaia Rolini, who's a talented young climber. Then they had Balsamo and Renan Roy, um, supported by Amanda Sprout and Brodie Chapman, I think. So it was quite a different lineup for them, but they executed the plan perfectly. And I think when a lot of teams were expecting it to be a sprint, they went for it with an attack and surprised everyone. And then because of the dynamic in the chasing group behind, Van Amory stayed away and they were all looking at each other. And it was a great win for her, really nice story because it's obviously her first World Tour win and she's had an amazing season in cyclocross. And um, to come over to the road and, and win a race like that, it's really, really impressive. Tell me more about the lack of cooperation in that second group. Seems to be a real unfolding theme. Yeah, I mean, they were just all looking at each other. I don't know if it was because they had Elisa Balsamo in that group and they thought, you know, even if we bring Van Amroy back, Balsamo will win the sprint and Trek were very, very good at closing down all the moves. So I think that was maybe just a bit demoralising for the other team. They did keep attacking and then people were quickly brought back and the group sat up and looked at each other again. And then there was also there was also uh, Lorena Weebs behind with a lot of SD Works riders chasing. So I don't know if they were also thinking if it all comes back together, we'll have Weebs in the group as well and Shu might win the sprint. But it was quite negative racing, actually. I, I was kind of hoping for somebody to launch an attack and stuff, but it's always easy to say that when you're watching it on TV and it had been a really tough race. So yeah, it was it was just no, no cooperation, really. And that's textbook, isn't it, as well? Because Balsamo did end up winning the sprint for, well, for second place. And that tends to suggest that for the other teams, there wasn't really much to do to win the race. It was one of those things where, you know, Trek were the strongest team on the day. And I think SD Works, I mean, they were the one, they were the big losers, really. They had no one in the front group, which is so unusual for them, kind of women's cycling's like, de facto super team basically for them to not even have anyone in the front group is pretty rare for them but they put all of their eggs in the Lorena Weebs basket and um, she probably encouraged by how well she was climbing at Omloop they believed that she would get to the finish line and be able to sprint but she was distance on the on the climb so she wasn't there in the end. Before we get on to the winner just a bit more about Weebs I mean she said that she wants to be more than a sprinter did you sense that she is getting towards the point where she can compete in these races? I think so. I mean, she was very, very close to staying with that group till the end. But I'm just interested to see. I mean, if she does go down that road and the fact of it is, if you want to climb better, you probably need to be lighter. And when you lose weight, you can then lose a lot of power. So it's just going to be interesting to see how she'll balance keeping that you know, top end speed that makes her so fast and that strength and power, if she wants to get lighter and climb better, it's a difficult thing to balance, I think. And it's going to be interesting to see how she goes at races like Flanders, where the climbs are a bit more punchy and maybe a bit more suited to her than the ones are in Trofeo Binder. So the winner, uh, Shirin Van Anroy, she's the world under 23 cyclocross champion. This seems to be a real breakthrough result on the road for her though doesn't it yeah she's not won a a big race like this on the road but she's been really strong I mean last year on the road she was really strong as well it's not a complete surprise or anything and I think we're seeing it on the men's side as well these riders who do cyclocross throughout the whole winter they're they're flying when the road season comes around um they've got that intensity that speed and they're kind of used to that that adrenaline that you get when you start a race I think that's paid off really well for her and I mean I've I've heard her say in interviews that Trekker developing her really well and she really wanted to be finish the cyclocross season and come straight back in for Strada Bianchi and they sort of said to her no you need to have a proper break you need to take some time off and 
actually recover and enjoy the success of cyclocross and then when you come back to the road you'll be fresher and you'll be able to have a good classics campaign and uh, it's really paid off and Trekker for a long time been at the forefront of that very professional approach to women's cycling and that's why they've always had really good riders but I mean she's a great example of someone who they're developing carefully and not putting into a load of races just because they know she might have a chance to win them Um, they're making sure her welfare is at the forefront which is good to see. Who do you think is going into the main part of the classic season with most confidence now then, Trek or SD Works? I'm not sure. I mean, it's difficult to say because a lot of SD Works star riders for the classics weren't there at Trofeo Binder, like Demi Vollering wasn't there, Kopecky wasn't there, for example. Um, with their, When they're reinforced with those two, they're going to be even stronger Whereas um, I'm not really sure where Trek will look to for more reinforcements compared to the team that they had at Binder. There's not really anyone I can think of who was necessarily missing who will then come in for the classics and change that lineup. But I think what this race will have done is given Trek a lot of confidence that Lorena Weebs, she isn't unbeatable. And if they race it hard and are clever with their moves and their attacks, then they're as good as SD works or better. And it's exciting for everyone watching that this kind of rivalry between the two teams is developing because women's cycling in the past there has been seasons where SD works have completely dominated and obviously it's better viewing if there's teams who can put up a fight to them. And lastly any other eye-catching results for you? For me I thought uh, it was good to see Arlena Sierra from Movistar up there in fourth. She was isolated in that group it's the only Movistar rider and to still pull out a sprint finishing well she finished third in the sprint from the bunch behind Van Amroy is really impressive and I mean she had a good showing at Omloop as well she was off the front on her own for a long time before Kopecky bridged across and I have a feeling like a big result's coming for her she's always there or thereabouts and then also British rider Claire Steele's got a top 10 which is really impressive and she's kind of just having a really great start to the season actually and she's an older rider I think she's 36 years old um, come from duathlon so a really different pathway into the sport but Really amazing to see the her being up there in that kind of company ahead of the likes of Marta Cavalli, Nui Adoma, Juliette Labu, really established riders. She's getting a better result than them. So that was really impressive to see, I thought. Hopefully more to come. So thank you, Rachel. We're looking forward to a huge series of races now. So successive weekends are going to see Gemp Evergem, Flanders, Roubaix, Amstel and Liège with flesh alone shoehorned in there as well. Big question is, can the old guard reassert themselves? Our new magazine, Ruler 118, the classics issue, is just about to start dropping with subscribers. As always, it's packed with brilliant features, and I can't wait for our readers to get it. We've got interviews with Binyam Guillemet, Leanne Lippert and Emmanuel Oveti, a deep dive into Flemish cycling culture, and a series of interviews with seven Tour of Flanders winners. But we also sent James Start into the heart of Flanders with the orders to find a Flemish cycling bar and not to leave until he'd spent a good few hours enjoying the atmosphere and documenting it. The resulting feature, A Place in the Sun, is one of the highlights of the magazine. So James, you get all the hardest jobs in Ruler. Tell us about In the Zone. In the Zone, I always thought it was In the Zone, but actually it's In the Sun. Yeah, it was actually Nico Matan, the, uh, the former professional who's now an ambassador with Quarmont Beers, who turned me on to it. He said, you know, there's this one great bar, it's over by the Kemmelberg. And it's a friend of his, and, and he's from that kind of region of Flanders. And he said, you gotta go to this place. And it's magical, it's lost in time. The guy has this amazing collection of old Belgian bar paraphernalia and cycling imagery and collections. I mean, old black and white uh, portraits of, of champions of past, posters from the Tour of Belgium and, and these beautiful, like almost hand-painted posters and things. A small picture of Frank Vandenbroek, uh, who was a friend of his. I mean, it's just, it is oozing with soul. And it was a wonderful place. And he was a wonderful time to visit. He was a former pro, had a very brief career, had a health problem, couldn't even fi- finish out his two-year Neo Pro contract. And that's Dirk Gisselink, the owner, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, just, yeah, really, really great guy. And obviously he has his heart and soul in this place and it's a beautiful place. I looked at the website for the, the bar. It's got a picture of a group of cyclists enjoying a meal. Not your ordinary group of cyclists. It's got Alessandro Balan, Frank Vandenbroek, uh, Nico Matan, who you just mentioned, and Matteo Tosato, along with Dirk. So it seems to be a real hangout for 
Flemish professionals, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. Um, it's it's on the training roads of some of the riders. Like he said, you know, like, you know, obviously Vandenbroek and, and Matan lived around there, so they would come in. But he said, like, today, Yvon Lampart will, will swing by when he's on a long ride, come in for a, a cup of tea or maybe a cup of soup when he's out there putting in the long miles. It's still a frequent spot. And, you know, and then obviously on race day, the big, you know, it's it's day in the sun is Genvevelgem. And the race goes by the bar, I think, on two occasions. He has special tents out there. He's got DJs going long into the night. I want to go back for Gant Velvogum just for that. I mean, riders of the past are passing through. Patrick Lefefer always comes through. I mean, it's it sounds like it is the place to be in Gant Velvogum. And I love the photos you took of it. It really conveys a sense of the atmosphere of the place. It just looks like an Aladdin's cave of cycling paraphernalia. If you love cycling, you will love In the Sun. Uh, it's just, it's, that's, it's as simple as that. Ruler, we, we talk about cycling culture and I just love digging up these places and finding them and wherever they are. And this is just one of them. And we, 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 you know, we have a knack for finding these places. And that's what I love so much about this sport. I mean, there's so much history and culture and there's so many little places like this if you search them out. And they all have such a personal connection of love and passion for this sport. And that's what makes this sport so special. I mean, it is the most beautiful sport and places like this are why. James's feature, A Place in the Sun, can be found in Rulo 118, the classics issue, which we will be with subscribers imminently. To buy the magazine or subscribe, go to ruler.cc slash subscribe. Our journalism is underpinned and largely funded by our readers. So please consider subscribing to read this and many, many other excellent features. You have been listening to Rulo Conversations. Rulo Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Rulo magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Rulo and on Instagram at Rulo magazine or visit our website at Rulo.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.